0: This is episode 105, and we have a very special guest. I will introduce to you him in a few seconds, and very happy to have him on. His name is Rob Beersley, and he oversees acquisitions and capital markets for Lone Star Capital, that you can find at LoneStarCapitalGroup.com, and has acquired over 100 million dollars of multifamily real estate. He has uh, av- uh, evaluated thousands of opportunities using. Uh, Propriety Underwriting Models and published the number one book on multifamily underwriting, which of course we're gonna go in deep and explore what is that like to underwrite multifamily deals. Uh, The the Definitive Guide to Underwriting Multifamily Acquisitions. uh, Probably you can find that on Amazon or we're gonna get that link for you guys. He has written over 50 articles about underwriting deal structures and capital markets and hosts the Capital Spotlight podcast, available on iTunes, of course, which is focused on interviewing institutional investors. Again, more information about Rob and what he does at RobBeersley.me, And, of course, all these links to the social media, Instagrams, Facebooks, YouTubes, everything is going to be down below for you to follow. Rob, I appreciate you joining me today on the show. Thanks for having me. That's no problem. No problem. Happy to connect. So look, first question first. Uh, How old are you right now? 23.
1: 23.
0: Here you go. 23 hundred hundred million dollars of multifamily in real estate and a book about, you know, underwriting. I mean, where's that coming from? at 23 years old, right? So the question would be kind of, can you talk about your personal background, where you're coming from and how did you get involved with the real estate investing?
1: Sure. So my background, I grew up in Silicon Valley in Northern California. And, you know, despite being surrounded by technology startups and, you know, the the giant technology companies of Silicon Valley, I grew up in a real estate family. My parents ran a real estate brokerage firm out of their home, essentially. So they both worked from home. Um, So I spent a lot of time with them, overheard their phone conversations and just really was uh, immersed in their business from a young age. So I kind of didn't realize how much I, how much real estate I really knew and understood, because it just felt common to me, or it felt like, of course, I know these things, I hear it all day. And so, um, you know, that was how I grew up. But then when it was time to go to school and start focusing on a career, uh, my parents didn't want me to pursue real estate, they thought that tech was more sexy. And they, you know, being in Silicon Valley, they thought, oh, well, look at all the people that are you know, selling their startups for $100 million, a $1 billion, that's what you should do. And so so I went to school for um, information systems, and was, you know, learning computer science. Uh, but, you know, pretty quickly, I came back around to real estate and was, was, you know, fully obsessed and, and studying on my own time and uh, was, you know, starting to think about investing and, and actually making investments and building my own business. And, Um, it it essentially consumed me to the point where where I decided it was best to leave school and and start my company, Lone Star Capital.
0: Wow, okay, so a few things to cover here because I have so many questions coming up to my head. Again, first of all, your parents are involved in real estate. They own a brokerage in California, right? So how did they give you that kind of, you know, there was like, oh, don't pursue the real estate business. Why why is that?
1: To be honest, I think it was because the way that they were approaching the real estate business was in a way that they weren't particularly satisfied with and and didn't, you know, want the same for me because, you know, they were essentially, you know, running a very, uh, I mean, any business is hands-on, but a very transactional business, you know, a lot of work, uh, a lot of clients, and they're not really building a portfolio on the the brokerage side. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so, so, so they, they came from that background and, and the lack of scale associated with residential versus commercial. And so I think that was the big difference. You know, once I was doing my research and exploring and saw that, you know, commercial real estate could be a, a very exciting and lucrative path for me to pursue that was actually scalable, not only scalable in terms of, of, you know, company size, portfolio size, income size, but also scalable in terms of my passion, right? It's, it's something that, I'm not necessarily gonna grow out of because there's always something new. There are always new challenges associated with growth and every step of the way. So uh, it's a very rewarding business to be in.
0: Well, I agree with that. You know, $100 million in real estate so far. So, I mean, it, it seems like you guys are doing pretty well for yourself, you know, this, this, in, this, in these times. But the question that I have, I mean, you, you follow then the education, which you said, what what do you have studied before? Information systems. Information systems. So, and of course you quit, you know, that so he was like, I, I need to leave because it doesn't make any sense. Have you found that, I mean, the education, how much you acquired of that education, I don't personally know, but did it help you to, you know, in, in your real estate business a little bit?
1: Sure, it definitely helped a little bit. Uh, you know, one thing about computer science is it's essentially a, a skill in problem solving, right? Once you understand language, then you just are basically trying to solve problems through the language. And problem solving, I think, is one of the most valuable skills. And it, it applies across, you know, all disciplines. And so I definitely took away that um, that rigorous problem solving attitude, uh, you know, to everything I do. And uh, yeah, so I definitely, you know, took that away from it.
0: And I'm sure maybe you, you kind of came up with something that helped you maybe craft the underwriting process. Maybe maybe there's something to that too, but of course we're going to cover that. One thing that I wanted to ask you again, you learned from your parents things on like what not to do, which is obviously not have, you know, hundreds of thousands of different transactions, which is like on a sales job and maybe it's too boring. So have one transaction where you can close a big unit apartment or something in that nature, right? But what is the thing that you took away from your parents as a business people? Like it's a, it, that was a great advice.
1: Well, my dad is a huge mentor to me and I'm very fortunate for that. And so he's one of the most hardworking and determined people that I've ever been around. And it's, al- it's almost, it's his great skill but it's also a fault of his because he's so persistent and he's so determined that he'll pretty much accomplish whatever he's trying to accomplish, but sometimes it's a pirate victory, right? It's, it's to, to what end, you know, because there might've been a simpler solution or something like that. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a balance that you need to have because for sure to be successful in any way, you have to have that determination and that persistence. But at the same time, you can't just take that advice and go bang your head against a wall a thousand times, hoping to break through. You need to go and find the window or the door to get through that wall. And so that is something that I I both at the same time, both learned that was a a very good trait, you know, not giving up and things like that, but then also think working smarter, not harder and finding those, you know,
0: optimal solutions. Got it, got it. Okay, so your personal journey in real estate investing, I would like to talk about that also because I mean, uh, you know, again, just, just mentioning 23 years old, 100 million dollars, acquired with Lone star capital so far in multifamily deals specifically. So can you talk about the first deal that you came across? Can you give us a, like a little bit of background and the story behind it?
1: Yeah, so when we first started out, we were uh, just trying to get more familiar with the business and trying to gain experience. And so the way we did that, which I think is a very realistic and and, uh, it's a good way to go, which is to partner. I mean, obviously partner with people who have more experience and and potentially take a uh, more backseat role in your first deal or two. Not not necessary, but it's definitely a great way to learn. And you learn a lot more than you think. You think, oh, well, how am I gonna learn by just kind of taking a backseat and letting somebody lead the way? But you do, you learn a lot. And so even if you just go through the process of, for example, partnering with somebody And raising capital you're going to learn a ton because you're going to be asked questions from your investors you're going to learn about you know the closing process and then the actual asset management practice so so that's what we did and we you know we raised a a few dollars from some family and friends investors who were you know who saw our vision and and believed in the investment thesis and then uh, from there that allowed us to grow and um you know pursue our own deal where it was our lead sponsorship our name and and it was going to be our asset
0: got it so so the first kind of investments you, you went as a limited partner right
1: yeah limited partner and co-gp partner where we were uh you know essentially like i said taking a back seat mm-hmm. yeah yeah
0: got it so what was the first acquisition as, as a gp can you talk about that
1: yeah the first acquisition was a 261 unit property in houston texas and uh, that was a, a, a whole, I could write a whole book on just that, all the lessons learned, all the mistakes made. Uh, so it, fantastic experience. And we had the many challenges, including raising capital, right? You, I think people both over and underestimate raising, ca- how difficult it is to raise capital. You know, can when you, you first you, start out.
0: Yeah, please. Can you talk about that? Yeah, thanks.
1: Yeah. So when you when you first start, you probably think raising capital is easier than it really is. You know, the reality is raising capital is is very challenging. You encounter a lot of no's and it's not something that you can just set up overnight. It takes a long time to establish relationships and getting those relationships from the starting point of getting them to know you, then to like you, and then to finally trust you, right? And that's the full uh, series of steps required. And so, so it's kind of hard to... Uh, be be new and go out there and look to raise you know four million dollars because you essentially haven't dug your well before you were thirsty right it's very hard to dig your well when you're thirsty and so that is something that I, I definitely preach and it's a uh, terrific advice a lot of people uh, are misled by the idea that if they have a good deal in hand then the money will come
0: mm-hmm.
1: or they think well first I just need to get a good deal and then I'll figure out the money later but Really, I think it's the opposite. You should be, I mean, you need to be doing both at the same time, but you need to be absolutely digging your relationship and investor well before you're thirsty uh, because by the time you need it, it's too late.
0: Yeah, definitely makes sense. Okay. So any advice for people, you know, who are watching and kind of, you know, building those quality relationships? I mean, how do you start, how do you go about, and like, are you talking about kind of, because of course, maybe there's people who are watching and they kind of have those, you know, accredited type of people in their current network, but how do you expand your your reach and how do you reach more people?
1: Yeah. So some people, like you said, are lucky enough to have accredited and high net worth uh, investor type of People already in their network. And that's, you know, like I said, that's very lucky. And you can develop those relationships because they already know you. So, wait, wait, what you asked is taking kind of the, the top of the funnel and how do you bring that? How do you widen that? How do you increase that? And I think, you know, it's pretty straightforward, but it's a lot of work. And so, not a lot of people do it. But the, the, the really the best ways are to participate and contribute to thought leadership platforms like LinkedIn pockets, Facebook, virtual conferences, live conferences, um, YouTube, podcasts. So it's a lot of work. And a lot of people, it doesn't fit their personality type to put themselves out there. But that's really the number one way to gain grow that top of funnel, right? Because now if you're out on LinkedIn, let's say, or you're on a big billboard, a lot more people are going to know you, but that doesn't guarantee that they'll like you and trust you. But at least that gets the first part going. So, so that's important. Um, but what I would say is depending on if you're, if you're starting out, depending on what your existing network looks like, it, it kind of depends where you should be focusing your efforts. Because let's say you're an established professional, you know, that's 45 years old and has a, a longstanding network. You probably are served best by nurturing your existing relationships before you go out and try to meet new relationships. But if you're brand new and you don't have an existing network, then you pretty much just need to charge ahead and, you know, go push on all fronts.
0: Got it, got it. Okay, that's a great advice Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. So again, your first deal, 200 plus, how big How big was the deal you mentioned? 200? It was 261,
1: 261 units.
0: 261 units. Okay, so the first question first is why Texas? I, again, you're based in California and probably that's where you started to look for these deals, you know, while still being in California. I mean, so what states have you looked at prior to investing in Texas and why have you made, mis- made that decision to invest in that state in particular?
1: Yeah, Texas has many things going for it, uh, such as population growth, job growth, um, you know, business friendly, uh, tax friendly. And so, but at the same time, those things are no secret. So it's not necessarily that there's a mispricing in the market, right? Those things are priced in. And so you're paying expensive prices in Texas uh, relative to let's say lower growth markets, but nonetheless, it's a strong market. And it's a market that investors understand. And so, especially when you're starting out, uh, it's, it's likely a better decision to invest in a market that investors are going to get, right? There's, there are the hot markets that investors love, which is, you know, Phoenix, Denver, much of Texas, Florida, Atlanta. You know, these are the, the markets that are no brainers, pretty much all investors are interested in. And I would just, I recommend that investors don't make it too, or, you know, GPs don't make it too hard on themselves and pick a, an, you know, two tertiary market or an obscure of a market. So that's kind of what we did. We just kind of followed, um, we followed that idea. And, you know, another reason why we like Texas is it's such a big market that there's a large opportunity set. You know, you don't wanna d- really dive deep, deep, do a lot of market research, build relationships in the market, only to discover that only you know 500 plus unit multifamily deals trade in that market a year because it's just not going to be enough of an opportunity set. So yes. so Texas is the exact opposite. It's a trading state. People buy and sell frequently and there's just, you know, hundreds of thousands of units.
0: Got to make sense. So so talking about your current investor base, I mean, maybe you can give kind of broad number of like because uh, it's million $100 million dollars of a portfolio we're talking about. So how many investors do you have currently that is a passive
1: So we have over 100 investors and we have investors that range from, uh, you know, high net worth accredited investors that have, you know, full-time jobs like, you know, doctors and, um, you know, people working in tech. Mm -hmm. And we also have, um, you know, family offices and private equity firms that are more of strategic partners or joint venture partners. So they're not participating, you know, they might still be called the limited partner, but they're much more involved Mm -hmm. and they're much more sophisticated uh, and they are, writing checks anywhere from, you know, two to $6 million, for example. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to have a diverse set of relationships uh, because, you know, you never know what's gonna be the right fit for any given situation.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, that's another great advice. Thanks, thanks for that. So, uh, talking about the underwriting, of course, and the deals. I mean, you have a book on that, you know, on underwriting. So, can you talk about why is that is so important to you, and why people should pay attention to underwriting instead of, you know, the the, the state itself, which of course we have to pay attention to. But why is underwriting so important in multifamily business?
1: Yeah, underwriting is really just it's the core. of of investing and and valuation you know all all investing is backed well all sound investing is backed with underwriting and whether you're talking about quantitative or qualitative assumptions you need to still take all those assumptions and boil them into boil them down to numbers
0: can i ask you so you can make
1: a decision as to how much to pay
0: can i ask you a question sorry before you go into details is it possible let's say for somebody who's involved kind of try to make any common sense you know because of course if we're going to look at the market if the property is on sale that means somebody used to own it and they used to cash flow positive or negative that's of course when the underwriting comes in place but it means if the if somebody's selling the property if i'm going to buy it without doing the the, the perfect underwriting is, is it and like what's how is this possible if it's gonna cash flow positive or like what's the is, is there a percentage like you know, do, of course, I understand people get lucky with buying a deals when sometimes they don't know what they're kind of doing, they don't have no clue. But like, uh, is it possible to buy deals without doing the, like the perfect underwriting?
1: It's definitely possible to buy deals, but it, like you said, it might get you into trouble later. And because you made certain assumptions that are eventually proved to be untrue, and now you are potentially at risk of underperforming based on your projections and you know, expect- expectations. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, certainly it's possible, but I think w- what, what you really wanna do with underwriting is, the, at the end of the day, all these numbers and all, and all the calculations are just there to make, help you make a simple decision to buy or not to buy and at what price. And so I think the the important factor that a lot of people miss is risk. And, you know, you kind of have to know what you're doing in terms of looking at the numbers and understanding certain metrics to see what the numbers are telling you in terms of risk, right? Just because, just because a deal says it's a 20% return or a 15% return, it, it doesn't necessarily speak to the risk. And so uh, that is something that, is is really important and i tried to teach that and emphasize that in my book because i see a lot of investors just making their decision based on return and not really factoring in risk
0: mm-hmm. and when you wrote a book have you spoke to, like to the specific audience i mean to the people who are looking to buy like 100 plus unit deal or, or the same book is going to work for the person who's looking for four four unit deal
1: yeah so the book definitely works for, I mean, the target audience are people that are both investing actively and passively into multifamily likely syndications of hundred units and, and above, but the same principles apply to a four unit. I mean, absolutely, people ask me, oh, can I get your your underwriting model download? And I say, sure, absolutely. And hey, by the way, does it work for a four unit? I say, absolutely, it, you, it totally works for a four unit property, knock yourself out. And so, it, you know, although my book is very prescriptive and specific, and I actually walk people through step by step how to use my uh, personal underwriting model, it's not. Uh, at the same time, it's it's general principles, right? So it's very specific in terms of how to use, but it's also you know general principles that can apply to you know more forms of investing than just multifamily.
0: Got it. Okay. Okay. So of course the book that is called the definitive guide to underwriting multifamily acquisitions, that book is going to be linked uh, in a down below. So you make sure that you can download that. Uh, I'm not sure if it's paid, if it's free, but uh, you know, we'll give you access to that so you can uh, use it and abuse it and, and implement in your business strategies. But the question that I have is for your deal criteria, can you talk about what type of deals are you currently looking for? Yeah,
1: so we're still looking for deals in Texas, uh, all throughout Texas pretty much. And right now we're an interesting point in the market. So we typically, you know, our, our bread and butter, our favorite types of deals are deals that have a little bit of hair on them and and work to do. You know, they've been neglected by the previous ownership and they have upside either through renovations, management um, or the capital structure. And so those deals typically necessitate uh, financing them with a bridge loan because they don't they're not a stabilized deal they're a transitional deal uh, but bridge loans today are more expensive you know there's a big delta in in the pricing of a bridge loan versus you know stabilized debt through fannie and freddie so really in my opinion the best buys in the market are, are deals that are agency financeable meaning they are stabilized and you can put long-term conservative cheap debt on them so that limits our, our options today and Furthermore, we're you know the returns that we're seeking are, are very difficult to find in the market. So you know to give you an example, we're looking for somewhere around a 16% IRR net to investor, and you know that roughly translates in our markets to a 7% return on cost. Which you know when you're buying at a five cap, it's difficult to push the operations up to a 7% uh, return on cost. So those are kind of just some metrics to throw out, but but we're very um, you know, we analyze very much. So bottom up, we look at a deal on a deal by deal basis, just because it deals in a market that we like, doesn't mean we like the deal, right? We're, we look at the deal bottom up and, um, you know, evaluate all those metrics that I mentioned.
0: Mm-hmm. Got it. So how many deals do you have come through your table? I mean, how many deals are you currently looking at and having a pipeline and like, what is the strategy? How many deals are you planning to close on this year?
1: So our goal is to underwrite at least uh, 10 deals a week, for acquisition and then 10 deals a week for preferred equity investment. And so preferred equity, just as a quick aside, is a new strategy that we launched um, in response to COVID really, when we saw the structural changes occur in the capital markets. And preferred equity is our strategy where we're actually partnering with other sponsors and we're providing them uh, capital up to 85% of their um, cost requirements, you know, not equity, but of the, of the cost of the deal. And so it's kind of Similar to debt in the way that we're seeking a fixed rate of return, and then giving them all the upside, but we're still equity. So we're we're partnering with them on the equity side, uh, but we're just seeking priority in payment and a fixed rate of return. So it's it's kind of it's got a blend of debt and equity in it, and this is a strategy that lets us uh, do more deals, partner with more people, and um, you know grow our business. So, so the preferred equity side has been great. So like I said, we're looking to do 10 deals a week on the acquisition side, 10 deals a week on the preferred equity side. And that definitely keeps us busy. And in a perfect world that would result in us buying four deals a year in terms of acquisitions. And I would say, um, you know, 15 deals a year on the preferred equity side.
0: Got it. Okay. So Talking about, uh, you know, deal sourcing and, you know, raising capital point, maybe because I know he, he kind of works uh, both ways. And what I mean by that is marketing piece. I mean, we, we kind of live in the digital age, right, where, you know, you can source deals. You can raise capital. You know, through social media, and I, like I came across multiple syndicators, multi-family investors who who do that successfully. So, have you? I mean, what type of strategies are you using for your own marketing? And you know, are you does it help to your business scale the business, raise capital? You know, source deals through through marketing techniques, and maybe you can share a few.
1: Yeah, I think the power of of putting yourself out there is is absolutely tremendous for the business that we're in. know the more people that know us and uh uh, you know they can become they can work with us either by being an investor they can work with us by bringing us a deal and they want to partner on the preferred equity side um you know so there's there's lots of ways that we can work together and that's that's exciting for me uh because it just makes all these all these relationships that i'm making uh you know very valuable and so so that's motivating and so i think you know, for, for us, our strategy is produce high quality content that people are really going to enjoy and talk about. And that's, what's going to get not only people to know us, but also to like us. And then obviously the trust component that I mentioned before doesn't happen overnight. That happens over time through, you know, more exposure, phone calls, um, you know, Kind of showing track record showing a uh, previous experience and kind of keeping up with what's happening so i recommend people to you know if you don't have a newsletter consider starting a newsletter but at the minimum just keep the people in your circle updated on what's going on so if you have a win no matter how small um you know share that with them and that just kind of builds that confidence and that trust so so that's our strategy you know we have um i write i write books i write articles we send out newsletters i make videos podcasts um, so uh, really just trying to put ourselves out there
0: got it, got it got it so of course like the the blog articles you can find on lonestarcapitalgroup.com uh it's all about underwriting deal structures capital markets and, and and more uh but the capital spotlight podcast can you talk about like what type of format are you using uh for the podcast do you have guests on just like we're talking right now uh, i mean what approach are you taking on a podcast
1: yeah, so the Capital Spotlight Podcast is a way for me to connect with uh, capital providers in the space and really sit down for, you know, 30 minutes to an hour and and pick their brain as to their what they're looking for in terms of an investment partner, what they're looking for in terms of a deal and how they structure those deals and, you know, just anything like that. So it's a, it's a great opportunity because a lot of sponsors like myself are, uh, you know, that we want to build relationships and and get into the minds of you know more institutional type of of investors whether we're talking about you know 200 million dollar funds or larger or we're talking about family offices you know I think it's those are really valuable investors and for some sponsors or syndicators you know they're not looking to build those relationships and they just they're they want to continue to build their their retail network of high net worth individuals but there's quite a few sponsors that have aspirations to, you know, break into that more institutional space and get uh, partners that are capable of writing five, 10, 15, $20 million equity checks. And so that's what, what I'm also very passionate about. And uh, so that's, so the capital spotlight podcast is where I bring those types of guests onto the show and ask all the questions that, that so many of us, you know, want to know, for example, uh, what markets are you investing in? What, What experience requirements do you have for your sponsor partners? Uh, What are your return hurdles? What kind of fees do you let the sponsors charge you? You know, we we all want to know these types of things.
0: Mm -hmm. Got it. So how often do the episodes come out on a podcast?
1: So I was pretty ambitious when 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 I first started it, and I was hoping to be able to put a new episode out every Monday. And uh, I quickly ran out of guests because I need (laughs) to, grow my network. So that's my fault. But uh, so I'm working hard to continue to bring very high quality guests onto the show. And I don't mean quality as in uh, just, you know, these are the best people in the world. And everybody who's not on the podcast is not high quality. All I mean is specific to the niche and specific to the topic, which are, you know, preferably institutional capital allocators, right? So I'm not looking for sponsors. I'm not looking for, um, you know, just everyday investors. I'm looking for Professionals in the capital allocation business, specifically to commercial real estate, even better if it's for multifamily.
0: Here you go, here you go. So anybody who's watching fits fits that uh, criteria. Make sure to get in contact with with Rob <laughs> for the podcast episode. Here you go. So look, uh, I mean, twenty three years old. I have to come back to that. You know, twenty three years old and having you know hundred million dollars of multifamily deals. Again, I, I don't think that everybody who's watching, they want to get involved into the business. Maybe they're about the same age, younger, a little bit older. Maybe don't, maybe they're not lucky as, as you've been, which I think you're, you've been lucky having family. You, you know, your father, who has been a good mentor of yours, kind of giving the advice and guiding you when it comes to starting your own personal business. Like, what tips would you recommend or give, you know, for the people, you know, who's watching, like, the, the stepping stones, how to go, get involved with the multifamily business?
1: Yeah, so first is education. And that sounds simple and straightforward because pretty much anything that you start starts with education, but I think what I'll say is it's not it does it's not a two-year process or a five-year process to become educated. You can really if you just really want it and you are really passionate about it, within 6 months of making it your life and going to every meetup, every conference, taking every phone call in and being brave enough to reach out to people who you think may not be accessible you know reach out have conversations put yourself out there be willing to say that you don't know something so that you have the chance to learn because when you just sit there and say uh huh uh huh okay then you don't learn whatever that you didn't really understand so it's putting yourself out there i think is really important to get that baseline of education and then from there it's having the confidence to to continue to put yourself out there um to now uh, build those relationships further, and not just coming from a position of I want to take and take and learn, but I want to communicate and contribute and grow together. And that's where you start to see um, opportunities come to you. So when you are talking to people, you know deals will come your way, investors will come your way uh, w- when you take this approach of you know wanting to contribute, give, and grow.
0: Got it, got it. And by the way, I think we just lost 50% of the audience when it said, go to these events, do this, do that, you know, connect with people. Like, man, it sounds like a, a like a hard work to do, you know, which which is probably is, you know. But uh, look, that, I think that's what it takes. Uh, I mean, I don't think I know because you're going through the same and, and, and building the business. So you're kind of giving the tips of what you're actually doing and did prior to that. So, but I think it could be a little bit too early to ask you that question. But I always ask that question because I want to kind of, dig in deeper into the core and find out what the true reasons for the, for the business person are when, they comes to, when it comes to building the business. Uh, Cause you're still 23, but let's look, I'm still gonna ask you the question, Like, what is the legacy that you're looking to leave behind you?
1: Well, the, the thing that really drives me is a, any, any pursuit of excellence. And the point of it is not to achieve anything or to get anywhere, it's, it's the journey. And that's obviously cliche, but it's, it's very true. And a fool, I I always say, and I I can't remember who said this, but a a fool is someone who achieves his goals because you should be constantly raising the bar higher and higher because it's no fun to just get to the top of the mountain and then just say, okay, I'm done. So I'm not looking to leave any specific legacy. I don't want to, uh, you know, build something and then be able to say, here's my my thing that I built. I, I just want to, you know, be known or not known but just to consistently uh pursue excellence in whatever i'm chasing
0: here we go that's that's a good enough answer i mean a it works for me and it does make sense i love the fact that you're using the quote that it says you know keep reaching for the new heights and new levels because there's always a new level even when you find there is no you know there's no room there's always a you know more room to improve and grow so i mean you, you know i love it again the information that you provide of course we can go you know in depth and we can go as, as long as well we can talk here probably another you know a couple hours and kind of discuss the underwriting process but hey look there's a book for that that people can go and download so we are going to make sure that we put that there so people can grab it but i really want to appreciate you know say big thank you for being today on the show i mean you know, just coming back to the fun, to the fact, I don't know why my brain just coming back to like your twenty three hundred million dollars in real estate, which just doesn't happen that often, you know, for people your age. So you know, congratulations on that, definitely. Uh, guys and girls, make sure you connect with Rob. Of course, if, uh, as I said, if you fit the podcast criteria, that will be awesome. Uh, if not, you just contact him, you know, and, and talk real estate. You know, passive active investing. I'm sure he will dedicate a few minutes for you so we can talk real estate because this man is 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 real go-giver and he's passionate about what he's working on. So Rob, thank you for being on the show today. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
0: No worries. So guys and girls, uh, before we go, just one thing that I wanted to ask you, if you share this episode with a friend of yours, uh, you know, that one who always talks about real estate and investing, but never pulls the trigger, uh, make sure to send this episode his or her way, uh, because uh, that person is going to find a lot of inspiration, strategies, tools, techniques, how to start their own personal multifamily business or get involved with it passively. Uh, So make sure to do that. Rob, again, thank you for being on the show. And as always, uh, I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for watching.